0: once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast. It isn't every week we have a world champion on, but we do this week, the 2015 Crucible King, Stuart Bingham. Welcome along. Thanks, Mike. How are you doing? Good, thanks. It wasn't the first world title you'd won, of course, because you were world amateur champion in New Zealand all the way back in 1996. You literally cannot get any further away to play snooker, so what an adventure that was for a young man.
1: Yeah, I remember it from door to door, it took us 30 hours, um... 20 what was it 24 hours to get to uh to Auckland and then it was a nice 6 hour bus journey all the way down to New Plymouth so good memories obviously met some great people um who is obviously keeping in contact with now so uh say great great and fond memories
0: how well did you have to play to win it
1: um i remember when we first turned up um i remember taking a picture of the trophy sort of uh, the trophy cabinet, what was on offer. And I remember thinking, wow, this is unbelievable. I'd love to sort of, it just, it's, good, it's good to see. And then how many days, 12, 10, 12 days later, I actually got my hands on it. So, uh, yeah, I, I remember sort of a, a good match with, I think it was Chris Shade. Mm. Or, or I remember getting through the group and uh, there was a Chinese player who, I think he won the world junior title the year before. Um and he was my second from last game and i had to beat him because i already lost a game and i think i beat him three nil three one and then won my last game which top top the group which got me through and then obviously i went from strength to strength
0: and you later became only the second player to have won that to then win the world professional championship as well as we will of course discuss but it was actually at the crucible you had the first real standout moment of your career as early as 2000 when you played stephen Hendry. It was the last time he went there as defending champion and you beat him in the first round. Was it a case of just going in thinking, okay, this is my debut here, there's no expectation on me, and that freeing you up a bit?
1: Without a doubt. Uh, the year before, I remember going in, having a sort of a backstage pass, sort of watching the games, seeing the cameramen, how close they were to the table, and sort of thinking, hopefully one day I'll get here and say, sitting in the chair where the players sat. And then obviously the following year, I qualified. We probably, we done, we'd done actually done the draw on grandstand, live, put yeah. together yeah. and um, it was a case of everyone saying oh, I'm lucky and I'm like it's the best draw ever, I'm going to get obviously TV coverage, I've got nothing to lose and, and it sort of played that way.
0: And you played Jimmy White then in the second round having pulled off that massive shock. Now as someone who grew up in the 1990s watching those two playing each other in the world final every year it seemed for a while. What an incredible thing to have so early in your career, playing them both within the same week at the Crucible.
1: Yeah, it's a unbelievable. I remember playing Jimmy in a, a money match um, sort of just after the World Amateur win. So um, I knew, obviously, I was up against it. And I remember, I think the first frame I made 130, I was like, here we go. So mm. Just sort of loved it. And I, I sort of hear people go to the Crucible and, and sort of either like it or, or hate it. Um, but I, I, was, I remember going there thinking obviously after losing to Jimmy thinking I could do well here one one day sort of one week and yeah, obviously it happened 15 years later
0: when you win on the opening day you have a long gap then to the next match I heard a rumour that you went back and played a local league match in between is that true that's it yeah, yeah. I remember obviously
1: I said to a mate sort of uh, I was playing a doubles game with a guy called Rob Duncan who plays a bit of pool now and uh, I remember him sort of uh, saying to them that don't worry I'll be home <laughs> sort of don't postpone a match and uh, mm. Obviously I won that match and then obviously people were saying what are you going to do and so I think Willie Fawn said go home, get away from me and try and live a normal life sort of thing and uh, so obviously played the, the doubles match, uh, won a couple then lost, had uh, the TV crew follow me everywhere that week. And obviously went back up for the second round.
0: It seemed all the big moments early in your career happened at the Crucible because two years later, you almost made a one four seven in the first round. I can see from the look on your face, you're still sick about it. Now, you've gone on to make a lot of money out of the game, Stuart. But at that time, whatever it was, £167,000, something like that, for a young pro, that just would have changed your whole life. It must have been so hard to take, going so close, missing the final pink.
1: Yeah, um, I think it would have tripled my career earnings. (laughs) So, um, obviously, like you say, at that time, uh, I remember getting to the colours and thinking, right, this is it, this is... I think when I put a DL, I'm thinking, well, that, that's a car, that's the, <laughs> like, the green was like a house, the brown was a holiday, all these things going through your head, and, and like, obviously made so many in practice. Uh, and I just thought, like, it's gonna happen, and just got just got a little bit wrong side on the pink and tried to do a stupid shot on the pink and took my eye off it and obviously missed it. and. Yeah, as you say, it still haunts me today. Uh, I still obviously get on that pink same sort of angle and it still sort of like flashes up 167 grand and yeah, it's all good and bad memories.
0: And of course, the man you were playing knew what you were feeling, Ken Doherty, because he'd missed the final black for a 147 in the Masters final just a couple of years earlier. He said something to you, I think, when you returned to your chair. Do you remember what it was?
1: Something like unlucky, sort of like great effort. Yeah. Uh, but he, he, I think he knew what he was doing. He, I remember him getting up after that, going to the toilet, let me stew on what happened. And I think I think I went four two up. Or it might been, uh, yeah. I think it was like four two up, and then I've lost the last or sort of three frames of the day because of that. And uh, obviously, like looking back at like he, he obviously he's played on what I, obviously what I was going through, and just sort of like just take his time a bit and. Uh, And obviously, being an experienced pro, he obviously knew what he was doing. They call him Crafty
0: Ken for a reason, (laughs) don't they? Yeah. So we'll talk about 2011 and the Australian Open, the week that changed your life, actually, in many respects, in a moment. But first, I'd like to ask you about the years leading up to that, because you'd been on tour for quite some time by 2011, and I'm guessing you must have felt you were a long way from fulfilling your obvious potential. Yeah,
1: uh, a few things, obviously. Like I say, we were going down to... Was it two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, we went down to six tournaments. Mm. I was always one of these that sort of play played not great in a qualifying, go in a pro-am in Europe somewhere and, and win that. Next week another pro-am wherever in England, win that. Get to another qualifiers, didn't do well. It felt like too much pressure was on me on my shoulders, sort of thing. And but uh, with obviously Barry Earn coming in, um changed it from six to what, twenty five, thirty tournaments. So we was playing sort of week in, week out. So all of a sudden it played like a numbers game. So if I didn't do well one week, it was sort of building up for... If it weren't sort of that week, it was a week after. If not that one, it was a week after that. Uh, My game got stronger and stronger. Obviously happy off the table. Got with my obviously girlfriend at the time now, my wife had kids and like you say, also happy happy life, happy wife or is it happy wife, happy life. Well it depends I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, obviously like you say my game went strength to strength and like you say got to two thousand eleven, sort of not far away from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. um went to australia and, and say things just clicked everything went right for me
0: so did you feel good going there did you feel this could be a good week for me
1: um i remember getting out there obviously packing for australia obviously the shorts and the t-shirts mm-hmm. and landed in minus two didn't really look at the weather and realized that was there about a month <laughs> of their winter <laughs> so uh, i think i had one jumper and one pair of jeans that, that lasted me all week um but uh yeah, I, I remember sort of being on a practice table. I, I had a little practice with Nigel Bond. And um, I, think I, met, I sort of, as one knows, I made 100 sort of first frame, second frame, made 80, next frame, he made a break, next frame I've had 100, frame after that made 100, just on the practice table. And I'm like, oh, my game's clicked here. And I'm like, just got to take it out there. And, and thankfully I did.
0: And tell me about the final and those moments when you're on the brink of becoming a ranking event winner after all that time.
1: Yeah, um, so I remember being 8-5 down. Thought, obviously, I missed my chance. Started to sort of sort of throw my arm at a few shots. Uh, um, and from, obviously, 8-5 to 8-all. Um, remember being sort of in a bit of a tight tight game. And I remember doing a cross-double, which uh, got me in to make a... I don't know what break I did, but I didn't win the match from it. Um, but uh, you got down to the sort of final colours. And I remember when he needed got down to where he needed a snooker and one of the um george uh the photographer he's gone well done lad and i'm like i ain't won it yet <laughs> and i think that that was the time when mark he tried to snooker me behind the brown on the green and um he got a kick and he left me the shot and obviously thankfully i went brown sort of green brown and then then punched it punch yeah winning it sort of thing but like you say there's, there's so many players out there on tour that people like Jack Lazarus get at the moment, great, like good enough to win any title he goes in. Um, but until that door opens, you sort of you never know. And 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 that for me, obviously Australia, that door opened. And like I say, all, all of a sudden I've gone from strength to strength from that.
0: Well, some players it doesn't work out like that. They win a title, and you think this could be the first of many, and then. That's it. They don't win anything ever again. But you also see players like that who make that breakthrough win the title and they never look back in their career. With Sean Murphy, it was the world. With Stephen Maguire, it was when he won in Malta a little bit out of the blue. And even the likes of Hendry and Higgins, it was a big step forward for them when they won their first title and they never looked back. But it's hard to think of anyone whose career turned so much on one single week as yours did on that week.
1: Yeah, like you say, I think it was a big thing with, say, Barrier and getting involved and, and just putting tournaments on. Um, I remember the, the following year after winning the Australia, it, it felt like a sort of pressure was on me on my shoulders, thinking like I'm a I'm a ranking event winner now, I should be sort of like playing good every week and just sort of just my own mental sort of uh, sort of thought about it. All, um, just may probably sort of I've, I suffered from it, and then the second sort of breakthrough, I won the Premier League, mm. and then from there, that's when my, uh, it, so it felt like the sort of gates opened up sort of winning tournament, sort of every tournament I was in, I felt like I was going deep and I had a chance of winning anything I went
0: in. Did you feel like you belonged more at the top level? Did you arrive at tournaments with a different feeling around the place?
1: Yeah, I I just knew that, like you say, until that door opens, you don't really know if you're good enough or not. And obviously winning them two tournaments, I I knew that I was definitely good enough to win anything I entered and and it sort of turned that way.
0: Now, you'd had that great result at the Crucible, as we said, beating Stephen Hendry all the way back in 2000. But for years after that, it didn't really happen for you at the Crucible. Certainly not any way in comparison to what you were doing in other events. Now, was there a reason for that? Did you not feel comfortable playing there or was it just the way it went? I think it's just the way it went. I'm, I remember playing,
1: like I say, that last qualifying round. I think I didn't qualify for about. Uh, I qualified, obviously, the first time was two thousand, second time was 2002. Mm. I think then it was two thousand and seven, eight or nine. Um, all them years that I remember playing Ryan Day in the last qualifying match, Michael Holt, uh, Rory McLeod, and just sort of it just never seemed to happen for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's just sort of like I say, you build up. You want to you're on your end end the season at the Crucible, and it's uh, I think. Uh, Sort how well I'd done all the way through the season. I, I think I stayed in the 32 without winning my first round match at the Worlds for say five or six years. So it just seemed to just never seemed to happen for me. And then I think obviously winning Australia then got me more or less in the 16, and and obviously I was in the 16 for a, a fair
0: bit then. Now, it's fair to say you got over whatever problems there were with the Crucible in quite spectacular fashion in 2015. We'll come to that in a moment, but talk to me about the season leading up to it because it wasn't out of the blue what you did in Sheffield. You'd had a good season, hadn't you?
1: Yeah. Um, I remember uh, I remember obviously going to um, Shanghai, winning out in Shanghai. Um, I remember winning one of the Asian Tour events. Mm. I'm not sure if it was after that or before, um, but then I won the Championship League and and I remember getting to a couple of semi-finals, literally just before the Crucible. So, yeah, my game was in great shape. Um, mentally, I was in a good place. And um, it, it clicked, I think, from the second round after beating Graham Dot at Sheffield. Um, say so my game clicked and, and I obviously stood up against Ronnie um, at, in the end. And then great battles with obviously Judd and, and Sean in the final. So, Yeah, it's unbelievable.
0: There was a lot of talk about Judd that year, and particularly after you had put Ronnie out, actually, I think people thought, oh, the planets are aligning here for Judd. And it was an amazing finish to the match, wasn't it? You got into a strong position, he came back at you, but you held on and got over the line.
1: Yeah, I obviously watch it back every now and then, and and to go 16-14, I think I made 100, and then Judd's come back with two hundreds himself to to level at 16-0. And then I was sort of like, well... If I'm going to get beat, I'm going to go out fighting. And uh, I remember getting in, in the final frame, a couple of reds, obviously tied up. And I pulled out one of these sort of stupid plants. But that sort of changed changed my life, one of those stupid plants. And uh, it sort of say it obviously went from there and, and obviously getting to the final and, and say like a two-day match with Sean and I come out on top.
0: I think it was after the semi-final you were on TV. You were literally in tears. I know you won't mind being reminded of that. And you just said, it's going to be great. It's going to be brilliant. And people love that. They love to see that enthusiasm. Some people try to play it down and say, oh, look, we'll just see what happens. It's just another job. But you were the complete opposite. You were just full of joy and wanted to show everyone.
1: Yeah, I'm, so I'm, I remember a few years before that, I remember seeing like Barry Barry Hawkins get to uh, the final against mm. Ronnie. Um, I remember obviously Ricky Walden getting to the semis, to the one table set up. So my my aim was to get to that one table. I felt like I was good enough to do it. Uh, obviously once I'd done it, obviously I got past Ronnie, I looked at the draw, I'm like, I've got Judd to play the winner of Sean and Barry and like we've grown up together sort of thing. So there was no aura about it um, sort of being sort of the underdog or, or whatever like that. But um, yeah, just, just sort of get to that one table set up. I was in my element I just just sort of like I'm arrived that's all I wanted to do but then I sort of got my head together and obviously played some great snooker in them what f- five days obviously semi final and final.
0: It was a cracking final in terms of standard it's hard <coughs> to think of a better one there's ever been at the Crucible but I remember talking to you only a few months after you won the championship and you told me that when it came to the Monday night you almost didn't want to go out there.
1: Yeah I remember getting to um, 14-11 I remember literally in the shower while my wife's brushing her teeth and i've got out of the shower and i went i'm done she went what do you mean i went i'm done i said i just it's hit me like the nerves and everything i was four frames away from something i've always dreamed about and uh it was it was within touching distance and it like you say the, the nerves everything took over and it obviously went out in the um in the evening session um on the monday and I think Sean won the first, I made 100, I don't know how, to go 15-12, but then from 15-12 went to 15 all, and it just felt like I had someone else's arm on me, mm. um, it just felt like everything was going wrong, I remember mean, putting a good ball, getting a flick off the red, uh, going in off, but the red off flick went up into the bulk, so we had an easy start, just little things like that was started to go wrong, and I'm like, well, obviously it's just not meant to be, and... Obviously a, a, a long drawn out, I think 62, 63 minute frame at 15 all, um, and obviously got over that. And then it seemed to, my nerves seemed to go and I just sort of calmed down. I made, say, two or three good breaks to finish the tournament off.
0: If you'd drawn a line, Stuart, from your Q arm through your head, through the the ball and the pocket and kept on going... I was at the other end of that line. I was literally looking straight at you as you played the ball to leave Sean needing snookers in that frame. And I remember thinking at the time, what must this feel like when you dream all your life about becoming world champion and here you are now, one ball away. What goes through your head?
1: Um, I remember, say, bridging over the blue. Um, I just sort of like took a deep breath and just like, this is it. It's like, I I was such in a, in a good place. I was such in the zone that that I was just sort of playing like the old sort of saying one one ball at a time and I just like, my focus, my concentration was so good at that time. Um, I just knew that, uh, say, I, I obviously didn't really think much about it. I just, I was loving the moment. I was playing snooker, what I love doing. And it was like, before I knew it, like you say, I'm, I'm on a break of 60 odds. I parted the red and that was it. Obviously the crowd's gone mad. And I remember thinking, no, don't, don't, don't sort of finish here, sort of pop the black, pop, pop the next red, then you can celebrate. Because I've lost a few matches, obviously, potting game ball, celebrating, and then losing, sort of with them getting snookers. So I remember sort of doing that, and um, yeah, unbelievable. Uh, so uh, sort of I can put myself back there now and, and remember what the memories. Sort of obviously my hairs on the back of my neck, sort of are standing up as, as we speak.
0: People talk about Alex Higgins, Stuart, in 1982 and his daughter coming out into the arena and the iconic moments, as people describe it. Never mind all that. For me, the greatest crucible celebration was you and all your people in the arena. Just an explosion of joy. Wonderful to see.
1: Yeah, I remember it, like sort of the Pat Cash moment. Yeah, um, going I'm, up I, into the crowd. Yeah, yeah, I, me- I remember a couple, uh, literally a week or so later, I went on the Claire Balding show and I was actually with Pat Cash... Doing the show and uh, oh, he was on the same. Yeah, this, yeah. This, for
0: anyone who doesn't know, Pat Cash won Wimbledon in 1987 and climbed up into the stands and greeted his family, which is now almost a tradition at Wimbledon. But yeah. you made it a thing at the Crucible that year.
1: Yeah, obviously I ain't seen it since. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I have done it. Like I say, it sort of I, I, the years of being on tour, moving my family and my friends, and like, my old coach Joe Lazarus. Um It was like good. It was just like. Everyone helped me get there to that day. I, I was like, obviously, cuddling and, and high fiving and kissing and everything. So it was just, yeah, it was just a moment to in, in sort of enjoy with everyone that was there. Yeah. Oh. the final Stuart Bingham after 20 years realises ambition and he is the 2015 Betfred World Champion what a feeling and Stuart Bingham is trying to find a way through to the family and there they are every single person is standing there Steve Feeney as coach look at that Sean Murphy what sportsmanship from him He's getting hugs from everybody. His manager there, Gary, right just behind him, he wants everybody down. Well, what scenes we've got here in the Crucible Theatre.
0: You get people who come through and win big sporting titles that maybe weren't expected of them in that particular year, and sometimes you say, well, it doesn't take away from it, but the draw was a bit kind. So you played in the quarterfinals, possibly the greatest player of all time, Ronnie O'Sullivan. In the semifinals, you played probably the best player of that season, Judd Trump. And in the final, you played the guy who'd been the best player over the two weeks, Sean Murphy. So it was the total opposite for you. It could not have been harder.
1: Yeah, um, people say, look at um, when, but yeah, what you said, um, the sort of jaws open up for certain people. Um, but yeah, I've definitely done it the hard way. I still get a few people saying, the luckiest world champion ever, and it's like... What does so, that yeah, mean? yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, how no, well I'll, did
0: you play? You know,
1: just being a lucky world champion. Yeah. I'll take that. I don't yeah, care. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's one of those things that you got to live with. Obviously, out of the blue. But um, like you say, I, I've done it the hard way, and sort it, of it was, it was a great experience.
0: You found the season as world champion hard in some ways, though, didn't you?
1: Yeah. Obviously, a, when obviously a lot of things I, I enjoyed actually the year. As I said, I just obviously done the Clare Building Show. I went on the question of sport. Uh, I obviously paraded the trophy, at Roots Hall, South End. And mm. uh, you went
0: to the playoff final, didn't you? At Wembley, I said at Wembley, we that, and yeah. then got
1: into the royal box. Yeah. So I've got so many great memories. Went to Loch Lomond, played golf. Um, just yeah, I just I just did sort of uh, sports personality in Belfast. Mm-hmm. Done done so many things that maybe we took the focus away from the snooker. Um, I was trying my hardest to obviously practice put the hours in but I, like, I remember obviously playing people like Sean when he was world champion back in 2005 6 um, they're all of a sudden there to be had they're, they're like you used to be the hunter now you're hu- hunted mm. and uh, that's what it felt like it felt like I I was a little bit off par and or everyone played really well. It was one of those and it was just, it was obviously a hard year.
0: Um, and you felt the public scrutiny a lot more, didn't you?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, obviously, like I say, from some sort of athlete being a no one to being a sort of world champion and, and being recognised in everywhere you go. Um, it, it, it was a big, big eye-opener, a uh, big learning curve and, uh, but it, I say, I, I was obviously embraced it, enjoyed it in some ways and, just, yeah, obviously I'd love to do it again one day, hopefully. And uh, it, it is what it is.
0: We'll talk about life since then in a moment. But first, the quick fire round. Favourite song? Um, or even favourite type of music?
1: Jamiro Choir. Um, what's it, uh, obviously it ain't that favourite because I can't even think of what the song's called. Travelling Without Moving or something?
0: Tra- oh, yeah, I think another one. Yeah, one. I yeah. can't think of the name of it either we're giving our age away talking yes. about your coin. <laughs> yeah. Best golf course you've ever played.
1: Um Wentworth. Uh, Carnoustie.
0: Oh, it's pretty hard to top those, yeah, yeah, too, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Favorite holiday destination.
1: Um Koh Samui, Thailand.
0: Best anyone's ever played against you.
1: Robin Hole Qualifying and impressed that uh, and I remember making it and i never had a good record against him and uh I went, I remember making 100 first, round, uh, first frame and I thought, right, come in, let's have a battle today. And he's gone 100, 100, 100, and it was like, I had to shake his hand and gone, wow, well played. It's just every time he we went in the pack, they just opened up lovely and it was just, it, it was, it, like I say, I have practiced with Ronnie um, and things like that. But that match was just scary. It was unbelievable. And
0: players you'd go on a night out with?
1: Um... Mark Davis is a good lad uh, Michael Holt he's he's obviously uh, a, a good good guy to have a, a bit of a bar dodger but uh, he's a <laughs> no he's, he's a good laugh um, I don't know Gerald Green he's always good good value to have around uh, some of them
0: that's plenty of players Let's look at your life since 2015, Stuart, and what you've done on the table. And, of course, you've won what most people now regard as the biggest event outside of the World Championship as well. The Masters, the oldest ever champion. And you won that in a different way, really, three years ago now. You really had to battle through every round.
1: Yeah, um, daunting place to play. Uh, one day we've got nowhere to hide. Just sort of people watching you, and that's it. Um, and it, it felt that way. I remember being 5-1 up on... Mark Selby losing 6-5. Um, I remember Mark O'Fu making a one four seven against me at the, the Ali Pali. Um, but yeah, obviously my first round match with Mark Williams, I knew I was sort of playing OK. Um, I think I went 2-1 down and then obviously won five frames on a trot. And again, something clicked in the game. And, and obviously it's how he it went from strength to strength.
0: It's been a fantastic week here, at Alexander Palace. We've had shots. Well, not short, because he got the top 16 players in the world. Ali Carter got on or into the oh, tournament yeah. because Ronnie really O'Sullivan didn't want to play it. But what a performance from Ali Carter to get to the, the final. Way. And when he Thank went 7-5 in front, we thought, well, it's an irony in the making. But Stuart Bingham, somehow, after the mid-session interval, has come out and played his best snooker of the tournament. And to tap it all, he made a century his first... In the tournament and he's now his dream has come true. He's got his name on that roll of honour. So what did that mean to you winning the Masters? Um, everything really. Um
1: it, it sort of it the the final it it was so top top and turvy sort of all, all way through the sort of the game, me game five-three. Um coming at the evening session from five-three to seven-five down thinking that's it, there's, there's my chance gone. Felt like, again, what, uh, someone else's arm on my, on my shoulder. And, and before I knew it, I obviously produced the, maybe probably the best snooker of the tournament for me uh, to come through 10-7 uh, or 10-8. Um, but uh, yeah, just obviously went through spells where I won sort of, say, five five frames on the spell uh, on the trot and it um, just meant everything. Like, obviously, with what's happened in, like, 2016, getting banned, and and stuff like that uh, to sort of get back to winning a Triple Crown event somewhere I've never really done well Um, just again a bit out of nowhere it it, it just meant so much
0: that was to do with betting on matches it must have been a very (coughs) tough time for someone who loves the game so much to not be allowed to play for months at a time yeah
1: it was tough Uh, obviously my family and friends obviously uh, my close family and friends got me me through it and it still haunts me today obviously still getting there Little tweets here and there about betting Bingham and things like that, and but it is what it is. I can't change it, and people that know the story know the story, but um, I can't change anyone's sort of view on it. It is, it is what it is, but uh, saying I've got to live with it, uh, it was stupid at the time, but. Sort of, it was, it was one of those things. Um, but
0: just to clarify for anyone who doesn't know the story, there was no suggestion of anything to do with match fixing or impropriety around matches. It was nothing to do with that. No, no, whatsoever. of course not. Yeah, yeah. So it's just literally just
1: betting on, obviously, other, pay, other players' matches and things like that. So, it, yeah, a few sort of like uh, insurance betting mm. for high breaks yeah. and things like that. So uh, people understand, understand it, sort of know know what it is. But... Yeah, I can't. No, no one can ever sort of go against me about match fixing. Uh, no, no chance whatsoever. I wouldn't let my mum win a match. Yeah. But I think Barry Ann said that after I got banned, sort of thing. So it is, it is what it is. Uh, it yeah. sort of life goes on. So. Yeah,
0: and there was never any suggestion that you had been. And I think it's important to clarify that. That Masters, within about a month, felt like it was from a different time because, of course, COVID happened and the world shut down and nights like that at Alexandra Palace seemed an absolute world away. And then just as we're coming out of that and the crowds are coming back at the Crucible in 2021, you go on another great run there and so nearly got to the final again.
1: Yeah, uh, great match with uh, Mark Selby. Uh, again, went from back and forth. And remember pl- having a good session to go f- I think it was fourteen eleven again. Um I think it was something like thirteen eleven, fourteen eleven. And uh he he sort of he sort of marked Selby'd me at the end. He uh he, he battled, battled through, he, he weren't playing particularly great, but he, he just battled away and, and he ended up obviously doing me I think it was seventeen fifteen. And uh obviously at the time it was a hard match to take. I felt like I played really well. It felt like it was gonna be my year again. To get that close and and not get to another final, it hurt big time. And uh, maybe it took me near enough a year to to sort of get over it, really. It was such a hard hard sort of loss to take.
0: Here's a list I'm going to read for you, Stuart. You'll enjoy this. Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Stephen Hendry, Stuart Bingham. Do you know what that list is?
1: It's got to be the 147
0: list. 147s. I mean, that's the three greatest players of all time ahead of you. Just incredible to be that high up on the list, but that's what your game's all about, isn't it? The heavy scoring,
1: yeah. I've, I've obviously like I've sort of practiced with say like Ronnie over the years, um, watched closely of obviously Harry break builds, and obviously I've bought into my game. And um, I remember early on in my career, obviously, I'd bring my mum and dad up and like, How'd you get how you, you play? No, not that good, it ain't about just making hundreds, it's like you've got to battle through, and and that's all I was all about, even back in when I first sort of started. Um, but yeah, the 147s have started to come pretty sort of, let's say, like once a once a year or so, mm-hmm. once a season. Um, yeah, I, I sort of love going through them. I'd sort of make maybe two or three a week in practice against other players. And uh, yeah, I sort of when I get my chance, I'll, I'll go for it. And uh, yeah, so say so like it just seems to, I, I just seem to get get on a stride for it. And um, I love yeah, love going for them.
0: So number four on that list. Who's to say you won't get to number one on it at some stage? But I'm going to put you at number one on an unofficial list. The strangest maximum ever made and the circumstances surrounding it in China a few years ago. A bizarre story.
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, I had a match with Ricky Walden. Um, we was one all. Uh, the frame was pretty early. I think there was still 11, 12 reds on the table. Um, and uh, you could see the frames. It all going nowhere quick. And... I needed to go to a toilet, so I've obviously said to the ref, can I go to a toilet? Ricky's then followed me out. We've gone to a toilet, come back. As I've walked through the door, the Reds are set up. And I've just gone, oh. And um, obviously Ricky's followed me about a minute later and he's looked at the Reds and he's just looked, we've looked at each other and we just go, oh no. Obviously I've then gone to the office. The office has said like, what happened? We see something. Like, what, what's happened? Because
0: the ref thought you had both agreed on a re-rack. Yeah, yeah. but obviously we've said go yeah. to the toilet. <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah.
1: Fought, he's fought re-rack. And um, so obviously I think it was either Paul Collier or, or Brendan Moore. He um, he said he had a screenshot of how the frame was. And he said, we can try and put this back or you can restart the frame. And and he said, like if you want to re-put these balls, it's going to take like 15, 20 minutes. And I went, you know what, let's just restart the frame that happened and obviously literally about 10 minutes later I've sort of potted the final black on the 147 so it's just that weird how things happen
0: and even weirder the follow-up to it then
1: yeah obviously um a year later same round same frame uh one all with Peter Hebden um again after a re-rack uh I've made obviously another 147 It's like people say about lightning, don't strike twice Mm. in the same place. But for me, it did.
0: You had all those things up. It was probably about 100 million to one against all of those things happening. Another game you're pretty good at, Stuart, is golf. In fact, you've been described as the best golfer among the professional snooker players. You uh, played a lot, I know, at Crondon Park, where we used to spend half the winter every year for the Championship League. So how good were you at your peak? Um, I
1: think at the time, I might have been one of the best. Um, I got down to a five handicap um, like I say, went before Barry and got involved. We had six events, so I was still playing golf sort of three or four times a week. I was um I was sort of a member of a couple of charities, Variety Club and uh, Sparks. Um obviously could play like two or three golf days a week with them. Um so loved it. Um loved it. Obviously I was I had a girlfriend but no kids. So uh, oh, well, I had man. my freedom All the time, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, I, but obviously, getting with me, obviously wife now, having kids, it, I don't really get a chance to play. I'd say I'm I'm probably a fair 12 handicap. I can like start of the summer. I'm I'm getting literally 20 points. By at the end of the summer, I'm I'm getting sort of 30, 35 points. So uh, I I still love it. I still enjoy it, but not as much as how I used to. Uh, sort of prefer to spend time with the kids mm. and the family and, and and sort of chill out a bit more from Snooker, getting older uh, not as fit as I used to be um, but uh, it's say still enjoy it and and it's good for what it is
0: it's always the way isn't it you get your game back in track by the end of the summer and then you don't play again for six months and you start again from scratch the following spring. Why are you known as Ball Run, Stuart? Did someone come up with it? Can you remember who coined the nickname?
1: Yeah, I think um, a guy when I sort of uh, ran ending school uh, used to go up at and centre club and there was a guy called Rob John. Uh, He was the best player in the club. He he went away for about six months come back and um, I think in that time I, I then become the best player in the club and I remember it, we having a money match and obviously got a bit of luck the way I used to play my probably like a bit like Judd when he first come on smashing balls around sort of potting balls off the lampshades and things like that and then obviously doing that you're going to get a lot of run not not leaving shots on and things like that so all of a sudden it, obviously nickname become Ball Run Bingham and it's it stuck ever since I obviously put it on my case and then a few of the other, obviously, pros, people like Gerald Green and Joe Perry, sort of like, are still around today, sort of remember it being on the case, and uh, it just seemed to stuck.
0: And it seems almost any time you get a little bit of running in a match, which everyone does from time to time, people are throwing their eyes up and saying, oh, it's ball run being a bit, It's a bit unfair, isn't it?
1: Yeah, as I say, people, people like, with that name, people, like you say, some of the commentators are, are watch back matches, and... And I'll get one little bit of luck and I think that it could happen the next shot, the other guy does it and mm. they don't mention nothing. Mm. So um, it is what it is. Sort is. Of, you've got to roll with it and you've got to obviously take it for when, when you get it, I think.
0: Sean Murphy, who you played in that Classic World Final seven years ago, was saying recently that he's sick of hearing players talking about how they don't really have the love for the game and it just means everything to him. You're very much in Sean's category as well, aren't you? I mean, your love for the game never seems to have diminished one little bit and you still enjoy it every bit as much now as you did when you started.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, I I still enjoy practicing. I'm um, obviously lucky enough to have a table in my back garden. Um, I look forward to, say, getting up in the morning and going and doing a few hours of practice. Um, I still love everything about it. Uh, the results ain't been kind lately. But um, it still won't stop the say enthusiasm for to, to sort of practice, put the hours in. Um, I think when that love sort of stops for me practicing and, and things like that, then obviously m- m- things will change. But uh, I can't see it changing anytime soon. I, I think it's a fascinating sport, very obviously mental, not physical, as you can see by me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's sort of mentally, it, it's so uh, it's so hard. It's it's not. I suppose like golf, you can play a bad shot. And you can still get a birdie from it. Obviously, Snooker, you, you don't even play a bad shot and you could be sitting in your chair. Uh, and it's just sort of meant so mentally hard. Um, but every every shot's different. A black even a black off the spot, there's maybe probably a million different ways you could play it. Um I'm obviously I'm appreciative what life I've had from it. Um, and uh, I think that's that's the big key for At why I do enjoy snooker.
0: That love's never going to go, really, because you'll be 47 next year. If you still have the love at that age, you're clearly going to be a Jimmy White-type figure and never lose that desire to go on playing. He's still going at 60 and doing great at the moment. Could you see yourself still playing at that age? Sorry to break it to you, but it's not that far off.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know, yeah, hopefully. Uh, Like I say, what an an unbelievable achievement. It just shows you what a legend he is. Uh, Obviously, I... uh, Every now and then I have a practice with Jimmy and you say he's still competing, He's still good in in practice, still making hundreds and he, it's good to see him sort of showing it on, on the tour. Um, but yeah, what what an unbelievable guy he is. Uh, one of my heroes growing up. Um, but yeah, at 60, um, what a cheer he got obviously at the UK, at, at the Barbican. Mm. Uh, watched it and you could see how much it hit him. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be obviously playing this game at 60, so... Mm. Uh, as you say, ain't ain't far ain't too many mm. mi- two years away.
0: I think they'll have to scrape you off, Stuart. I think <laughs> as long as you're still eligible to play on the tour, you'd find it too hard to walk away from.
1: Yeah, I I I think that's a, for a lot of players. Um I'm sort of a good friend Mark Davis. Mm. He's sort of like going sort of near near the sort of the back end of the tour now, but he's still competing and obviously I play a lot of golf with him over the summer. Um so uh, yeah, I I think it's in in us all it really. Um some people may probably don't like putting the hours in, but other people do, and and but some people love the the fight of the of the match play sort of thing of it all. But uh, yeah, I think deep down we all love it, even though Ronnie might say he don't, but I'm sure he does. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 a fascinating game.
0: Well, you've provided much fascination with everything you've achieved. And when you've done so well, no wonder you still love the game as much as you do. And I think you're going to be around here for many years yet. And it's been great sharing these memories with you on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Thanks for your time, Stuart. Yeah, thanks, well. Cheers. Next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast, it's former ranking event quarter-finalist John Astley back on tour this season after coming through Q School, including his extraordinary story of being in the cast for a play about snooker performed... At the Crucible, when the lights came on, basically the the balls were set up and the reds were spread around, and I had to
1: try and clear the table and try and make like a, a, the ideal hundred break. Mm. So obviously quite a bit of pressure. So obviously like rehearsals, like, you know, I says like I'm I'm going to try my best here, but <laughs> I might not make a hundred yeah. every night.
0: So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget our bonus content, the one four seven, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds, out every Tuesday and available to download at wst.tv. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and goodbye.